Great stuff. Well, it's good to see you all today. And we've got a new series we're starting today. Um, and I'd like to have, having just sent all the youth out, it's going to need to be an adult in this case, I'd like to have a volunteer to help me just get started and get us into this session. So, who can we? A volunteer rather than a pressed person would be great. For some reason, Steve was having his head pointed at then. Come on, Steve. Thank you. Very brave. Just introduce yourself to everyone. I'm Steve. Okay, that's Steve, everybody. <laughs> that, was, that was short and sweet, wasn't it? Right then. Steve, I've got a box for you, and what I'd like you to do is to describe. You can pick any item from the box. Don't pull it out, because the idea is that you describe it to people without using the name of what it is, but they've got to guess what it is. Okay, so you, they can't see it. Uh, you've got to just describe it. So you can't use the name of the item, and the idea is we've got to guess as quick as possible. So uh, we, as many as you can, really. Um, you, can, you can pick one if it's easier to sort of touch and feel you can, but um, just choose an item. I'm going to just monitor if he's said the name of it, because he'll be in trouble if he does, and uh, then we're going to go from there. So any item? Okay. Go for it. We'll do as many as we can in about two minutes. This is a... Uh bar of chocolate that's out of this world? No, 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 there's no good bar of chocolate, I'm sorry. So that's too, too, too obvious. Okay. So you have to be a little bit more subtle than that. Bar of chocolate, you can have that one though. There we go. Not, not that you need it because you work for a company that kind of does a bit of chocolate, doesn't it? So. What have we got? This is in a uh, container and when you use it, you start to smell better. Oh. Deodorant? Mm. No. Perfume, hand lotion, what else we got? Shower gel, deodorant. It's a, it's, it's, it's a manly version. Design a label to it. Aftershave, there we go, well done. You should have the bar of chocolate, shouldn't you, for that? Well done. What else we got, Steve? Um, use this item to uh, clean at home, washing up things in your sink. Fairy liquid, is it fairy liquid? No, no fairy okay. Fairy liquid. It's an item used to clean... Dishcloth? No. Dish a, scrub, a scrubber. Is it a scrubber? That'll do. It's a scrubber. Well done. <laughs> Random items. So if you need to um, separate paper into half, you use a pair of these. Oh, uh, excellent. He's getting, the f getting in the flow now. Doing well. Okay. This is um, used in America to buy things. A dollar. It is a dollar. Uh, this is hey. for... Armistice Day. You're doing well. Oh, look at this. You're flowing. Yeah. Can you do that big one for me? Because that would be really helpful. Yeah, of course. Um, there's many versions of this. The reason, it's <laughs> on, the, the, the reason it's really helpful is because I pulled this out of lost property. So if this is yours um, and you're missing it, can you, can you just pick it up from the end? It's not actually needed in the box, but just it's yours. I just wanted to highlight that. So it'll be here. Thank you. We got anything else? Are we done? Probably done, aren't we? We're done. Thank you very much. Round of applause for Steve. Steve, can you give that to someone on your way back, whoever you like. So, I don't need that, do I? So some of those things are, were reasonably quick to describe and easy. And uh, there's, a, there's a little VW Beetle in here. That might have been a bit harder. Um, what else have we got? There's a colouring pencil. That might have been okay. A roll of blue insulating tape. Without saying tape insulating or blue, that could have been tricky. Um, but some things are harder to describe, aren't they? 
Steve managed to get the, the aftershave and, and I think would have struggled a bit more if I'd, if I'd asked him to describe that without showing you what it was. Because somehow it's harder to sum up the, the fragrance or the, the, the taste of something. Uh, some of you will have, like I have over the years, watched various people trying to describe wine tasting to us. Now, we might have some experts here. Uh, forgive me if you are an expert, but it looks like completely made up to me as I watch this. Uh, and someone's kind of tasting, because I'm not an expert, so I'm a, I'm a rank amateur at this. And I would look, and, and someone's describing toothpaste and um, cinnamon and, and south-facing slopes and grapes trod by peasants. And, and, you know, and kind of you can get all this out of a sniff, and you think, how? How are you getting oakiness and lemony? And some of you may have done courses and can describe all that, but some things are hard to describe. And if we asked today around how do we describe God, I think we could fill a board with so many things that we could describe about God. And I want to pick one of those ones that's slightly harder to describe. We could say God is love, God is good. God is kind, God is patient, God, and we would describe God in so many different ways. But we'd be describing him in ways that we identify with and we relate to. And in this new occasional series, uh, I want us to look at some aspects of God's character and, and who he is that are important to us today, but that are easy to get missed. I believe that today it's so important to see who God really is. And if we miss this, we've lost everything. If we get it, the world can be changed. Our lives can be changed. The church can be changed. If we grab hold of who God really is, I believe everything would be different. Is anybody else with me on that? If you just think it through for a moment, if we really lived in the light of who God really is, I think everything would change. We'd read the Bible differently. We'd treat our family and friends differently. The church would be different. Sometimes we use familiar words to describe unfamiliar things, hence the wine tasting, describing it with, with words that you can relate to, or the, the uh, perfumiers describing their, their fragrances with words that they, we can relate to. Today, we want to go from, to look at a word which I think we've been singing about just a moment ago, that God is glorious. We've been singing about God's glory and glorifying him, glorify your name, we've been singing. And I want to look at this word because I think it touches on the familiar and the unfamiliar all at the same time. And I want to try and help us to see something of what the Bible teaches about God's glory. If you look up the word glory, you get three different definitions in the Bible, not in secular usage, not in the dictionary, it only has two generally. Uh, biblical use has three. And the uh, first one is high renown or honor. We can talk about giving honor to somebody, giving them glory. Someone gets all the glory for a project, maybe. Maybe that happens to you at work, that you did a project and your colleague got all the glory for it, and you weren't so keen on that. Well, that's what we're talking about there. But we can do that positively, where we're giving someone honor and praise and glory. So obviously, that's a biblical usage. Secondly, the magnif talking about magnificence or beauty or splendor or majesty, that's clearly a biblical usage. It's also a, a normal everyday usage too when we talk about something that's been restored to its former glory. Maybe a building was done up, National Trust property, and they've restored it to its former glory, and, and we don't notice necessarily what it was like or what it's like. We only see what it's like now as you go for a cup of tea and a scone sometime in the afternoon, and you have a quick pot around the gardens. And you don't necessarily see all the work that's gone in to restore something to its former glory. The third meaning is 
probably the most common one in the Bible. And it's the one that doesn't appear in secular dictionaries necessarily. But this is how the, the Bible often talks about this word glory. And it talks about the manifest presence. That's God's presence made known. And the Hebrew word that's used for glory is, is a word that means weighty. Weighty. It, it talks about the heaviness. Uh, in the Old Testament we read, and we will read later on, about a cloud of God's glory. It's God showing his presence with his people. Not necessarily showing his magnificence or beauty or splendor. Not looking for honor. But actually being present with his people. The weight, the, the presence of God. We've often seen that God's glory is when he's present and seen amongst us. I want to see a few things about how God's glory is seen, and then we want to make it really personal to our lives too. This wasn't the track I was going on. I just wanted to look at God's glory, but as I've looked into this in preparation for today, God's just, through the scripture, led me in a particular way. So firstly, Psalm 19 verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. If you look to creation, we can see God. We can see that God created. We can see the, the wonder, the majesty, the beauty of creation and just marvel at what we've done, what God has done, not what we've done. That's the problem. We often miss what God has done and we think we've done it. When we read Psalm 19, we read about how if we look, the heavens are declaring the glory of God, the skies are proclaiming the work of his hands. It goes on to talk about the knowledge that's conveyed by the heavens and the skies, how they proclaim Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the end of the world. All talking about how the heavens convey God's glory and reveal him. We see in this that the heavens are revealing God. It's the revelation of God that's the glory of God. It's connected. These two thoughts are connected. They're speaking about who God is and how he works and how he functions. This is why, as human beings, creation takes our breath away. This is what explains that feeling you have when you stand uh, on, a, on a beach and you look at the sea and you see the waves pounding or you go and you look at the night sky and you see the stars. It's that, this is what describes that feeling. When you're captivated in the moment, you just think, wow. This is so much bigger than me. This is so much greater than me. And the, that's the heavens proclaiming the glory of God in that moment. It's creation itself speaking about how good God is, how big he is, how present he is, and showing evidence of his creation, showing evidence of his creating power. I, I've read these passages so many times and I think sometimes I've missed the direction. I've assumed when I've read this quickly that the heavens are proclaiming to God how great he is. Proclaiming his glory like we've just been singing, glorify your name. And, and of course they're not. When you actually read the scripture, they're pouring out speech. The heavens are pouring out speech, but it's to us. Because we're the numpties that miss the fact that God created everything. The heavens don't need to declare to God that he's glorious. They're declaring to us. They're pouring forth speech and they're showing the glory of God. They're revealing knowledge. God doesn't need knowledge revealing to himself. We need knowledge revealing to us. And God speaks through his creation. There's a problem though. 
which is that we've chosen, not us personally, but humanity's chosen not to recognize that God created. And so you can watch these incredible programs, Blue Planet or whatever the BBC are producing next, and see the wonders of creation, and yet we miss off the fact that there's a creator behind the creation. And that problem goes quite deep. Because we've got the awe and the wonder, but we're, we're worshipping creation itself and its majesty without worshipping the creator of creation. And the problem is that then we choose not to recognize God. We end up worshipping created things. Or we end up being proud of our own accomplishments and our own cleverness. Aren't we clever that we've noticed these things in creation? No. Creation's clever because it points to one who's cleverer, greater, and mightier. And it shouts of him. Secondly, God's glory is seen in the Old Testament and through his people and in his, amongst his people. We, we read about the cloud of God's presence. As, uh, as the nation of Israel, God's chosen people are, are leaving Egypt, they're guided by a pillar of cloud in the daytime or a pillar of fire in the nighttime. It's representing God's glory, his presence with them. We read about how God's glory fills the tent. This is the tent of meeting, the tabernacle. Or it fills the temple. We read about the Ark of the Covenant. This is a box that carried the various items, commandments, and different bits that Aaron's staff and those sort of things were contained within this Ark of the Covenant. And this, this special box represented the presence of God. It represented the, the, the manifest presence of God with his people. It's why when Israel were defeated in a battle and the Ark was stolen... The priest at that time's daughter-in-law, who's having a baby, names the child Ichabod, saying the glory, because that means the glory has departed, the glory's gone. Because the ark had gone, God's glory had gone. The ark representing the manifest presence of God with his people. God present, like the cloud, like the uh, like the creation speaking of God's presence with us, actually God is manifestly present amongst his people. Not just honored, not just beautiful and magnificent, but there and present with them. And when the ark's stolen, they say, ah, oh, the glory of God has gone. God is still glorious. He's still worthy of praise, but his manifest presence was missing. And then we see this character of Moses, who more than anybody else, I think, in the whole of the Old Testament, shows us what it's like to, to know God's glory to know God's presence. God keeps turning up and appearing to him. And he appears to him in so many different ways. Uh, and yet, despite all those appearances, despite Moses meeting in a tent of meeting with God, and the Bible describes in Exodus 33, if you want to read it in your own time, that, that God speaks with Moses uh, like face to face. And, and yet the next chapter, it says, nobody can see my face. And you have to reconcile those two thoughts together. Actually, the face-to-face -face is a kind of colloquial expression describing that he sp speaks to him like a friend. He speaks to him in, in person, reveals himself to him. Uh, and yet there's this distance and this otherness with God that Moses can be with God and yet somehow he's still left craving more. And, he, and Moses says to God, Lord, show me your glory. And this is in a passage where, where God has just said, I'll be with you. But still there's a cry from Moses' heart to show me your glory. And he says, well, I'll be with you. I'll, I'll teach you all things. I'll teach you knowledge. And Moses says, yeah, but I want to see your glory. And we're seeing this kind of threefold meaning of glory portrayed in this story as Moses cries out, show me more. I want more of you. 
James said very candidly that he didn't want to pray, but he's going to come tonight. And there are times when we don't want to do certain things. Our hunger is, is not there. And sometimes our hunger for seeking after God isn't there. But there are equally other times where you, you've sought after God and you've prayed and maybe you've been fasting and you've prayed and, and you just want more and more and more and more of God. And you're not satisfied. And your heart's cry is, God, I'm hungry for you. I want more of you. That's Moses' cry here. He's seen God and yet he still wants more. What God does next is really interesting in this passage because if you read Exodus 33, God doesn't say, okay, I'll show you my glory. You'll see something really impressive. He says, I'll show you my goodness. My goodness will pass in front of you and I'll declare my names. I'll put you in a cleft in a rock and while you're there, my goodness will pass in front of you uh, and I'll declare my names. And he's saying, Moses is saying, show me your glory. And God's saying, okay, I'll show you my presence. I'll show you an aspect of my character. I'll show you my names which reveal myself. Why? Because God's glory isn't just about us praising and singing songs to him. It's not just about God being magnificent and other. It's about God being present. And, and, and God's saying, I'm going to be present with you and reveal myself with you. And present and known, which is why God wants to his glory to be seen so that people will know him. The whole of Israel is chosen, not just Moses, the whole of Israel is chosen to be a people for God's glory, for his display of his splendor. This is Isaiah 49. You, my servant Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. Later on it says, I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Isaiah 49 verse 3, God's saying, in whom I will display my splendor or my glory God is so keen that people would see him and come to know him that he chooses the nation of Israel to be a people who display his glory that's why he chooses them I chose you to be my people to hold if you like to be for God to be amongst them for them to represent his glory to other people this, this sense of God's majesty and his awesomeness and his power and his, his wonder is somehow going to be displayed through the people of Israel so that they can become a light to the Gentiles so that all can see. We see God's presence links with mission again and again through the scripture. And here we see this sense that God wants to be known and seen in Israel. I I'm, realize I'm, rap I'm rapidly going through because I'm just doing a high-level uh, look at this today. We, any one of these could strands could be a whole message in itself. Um, but just quickly, the greatest revelation of God's glory is, of course, in Jesus. There is none higher, no greater way of seeing God and knowing him and him being completely seen. And through the gospel stories, we get this, this sense that as we're reading through the stories about Jesus and his disciples, they're beginning to cotton on that there's something different about this man. They know that at the beginning, but as they see him at work, as they see the miracles that reveal God's glory, as they see him teaching, which reveals God, uh, they're beginning to cotton on that there's something different about this man, uh, and, and they're beginning to get to the point of recognizing that he's the Son of God. He's God himself. There's one point in the Gospels where Jesus undergoes something called a transfiguration, a, a transformation, if you like. Not 
he's not changed for in, in himself, but he's changed in the way that the disciples see him. They see him differently as a result of that. Up a mountain, and uh, God does something incredible, and he he's looks different, he seems different. They see for a moment a glimpse of some of his power and his glory and his majesty. They see what they wouldn't see until some time to come in that moment. Previously, they'd just been seeing Jesus as a man, and suddenly they saw this other side of him, this majestic nature, saw him transfigured before them. And these scriptures tell us this, the word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. In Hebrews, we read this, the son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. So when we're talking about God's glory, we're talking about how we glorify God by giving him honor. We're talking about God's magnificence, but we're talking about God's manifest presence too. That he's manifestly present, mostly through the Son, through Jesus. Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. He makes him known to us. He comes and stands amongst us and says, I'm here and we can know him. That's all great. It's wonderful. Jesus is the highest revelation of God's glory. And, and yet there's one shocking one to come. There's one surprising one which still, we know it. If you're a Christian, you'll know this. It won't shock you in terms of your head, but it should shock you in terms of your heart still that God chooses to be glorified in us. He chooses to make himself known in us, to reveal himself in us. And it's shocking because God's glory in creation seems so vast. It seems so huge. When you're standing, not on a cliff edge, because that's dangerous, but safely back from a cliff edge, be careful when you're preaching, safely back from a cliff edge, and you're, you're admiring the scene, it seems so vast. If you're overlooking a valley or a canyon, it can seem enormous, and, uh, and we seem so tiny in comparison. When we think of Jesus glorified on, on that mountain of transfiguration, we seem so puny in comparison to, to our Savior. When we see him exalted at the right hand of the Father, we seem like nothing. When we read the Old Testament stories of God coming near to Moses or being amongst the people of Israel, we feel tiny. And yet God goes further. He says, I will put my glory in you. Not near you, not amongst you, but in you you. 2 Corinthians 4, we read this, that for God, who said, let, our, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. That's still distant. It's us knowing it and seeing it. But then Paul goes on to write this, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. A little bit later on, we read this. We also carry around in our body the death of Jesus so the life of Jesus may be revealed in our body. This is shocking because it's a conscious plan, a conscious choice on the behalf of God, a conscious plan on his part, a deliberate plan to make his glory known in us. And there's this sense that you and I are made for the glory of God. The Old Testament talks about Israel made for God's glory to display him to the nations. We too are made for God's glory. Paul writes here about these jars of clay and 
I haven't got a jar of clay here. I've got a bottle of water, um, which is perhaps the modern equivalent. But a clay jar, it's not very impressive. It's not very magnificent. You don't look at a clay jar and marvel, unless you're a potter, and marvel at its form and function. It's just a clay jar. And yet this passage shows us that God has chosen to place his treasure in something that's plain and comparatively ordinary. And yet that shows him to others. It displays others. It reveals him to other people. It's an interesting image, a clay jar. We know that man in, in Genesis is made in the image of God. We know that he's made to represent God. We also know that he's made from the dust of the earth. God takes earth and fashions it into a man in the, in the story we read in Genesis. Paul picks up on that in this passage here. And he's talking about the the Christians, the new creation, those who are following Jesus, who, who are made of the stuff of the earth. We're clay. And yet, just as with Adam, God breathes into him, breathes his spirit and his animating breath, breathes life into him, so God has placed his treasure into the lump of clay that's us. He's placed the treasure of the glory of God, the revelation of who God is inside us. And there's more to come. There's more glory to come. He, he writes this, And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. This is profoundly uncomfortable. I'm much more comfortable saying God is glorious and we should honor him. Because that seems right. But God in this passage is talking about how we also have ever-increasing glory. Not in ourselves but alone, not because of our goodness, but because we're containing and carrying something of the presence of God on our lives. And as we are with him, like Moses, who, who when he met with God, he was transformed and his face shone, Paul's picking up on that, that thought and saying, look, you too will be different as a result of what God's doing in you. That image of clay, a clay jar, clay treasure jar, if you like. There's nothing wrong with it being a jar of clay. Nothing wrong with it being ordinary or plain. In fact, that's really helpful for us today. The focus here isn't on the clay jar, it's on the treasure that's within. It's always got to be on the treasure that's within. I think this is a really helpful image for us today because the clay reminds us where we came from. But the treasure reminds us where we're going. The clay reminds us who we are. The treasure reminds us whose we are. And we have this sense that the clay's where we're from, the treasure's where we're going, and I belong to the king because he's changing my life. It matters that God is glorified in me. It matters that God is seen in my life. So how do we live so I think this is the last slide. How do we live? Number one, my encouragement would be that we live aware of the treasure that God is placing within us. If you're a follower of Jesus, be aware of the treasure that God's placing within you. That he's put an inexhaustible, inextinguishable treasure in you. 
that he's placed his glory in us. And, and be thankful and humble and worshipful. Be worshipful to our king who is amazing. Secondly, so that's number one, be aware of the treasure. Secondly, never lose sight of the clay. God has given us a body to be used to con- contain what God wants to do. It's never to be worshipped, but it's also never to be despised. It's weak in part, it's plain in part, it wears out in part, like a clay jar does. But yet, in all things, it displays God. And if you're feeling like your body, your capability, your capacity isn't up to somebody else's, it's not as good as somebody else's, that's not our job to compare our clay jar with theirs. Our job is to display the presence of God to a world that needs to see him. There's a challenge in this. Because often I hear phrases like this, it's my body, I can do what I like with it. Except it's not our body. Because it's given as a gift. Our bodies, according to the scriptures, are temples of the Holy Spirit. Don't you know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who's in you? whom you have received from God, you're not your own. You are bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. So it's ours, but it's a gift. And it's this combination of both coming together where we want to honor God with all that we have and recognize that what we have is his in us. Thirdly, we want to live for God's glory. So firstly, we are aware of the treasure. Secondly, we never lose sight of the clay. Thirdly, we live for God's glory so that he will be seen. We live so that God will be glorified. What do I mean by that? We, we live so that others will see him in us. So that others will see him by our actions, by our thoughts, by how they come out, by the way we live our lives. That others will see him just like creation is speaking God's praise so our lives should reveal the treasure within. Paul writes this, the second one down, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Everything we do can display God to somebody else. That's in a particular passage about eating and drinking and, and what you should eat and what you should drink and the different people falling out over that. So it's not just focusing on, on, on you know, eating nicely with your knife and fork. That's not what Paul's saying here. But he's talking about how in everything, whatever we do, we can do it either to, to point to God or to point to ourselves. And my encouragement would be that we always are pointing to him. We're always pointing to our Savior, always pointing to the one who can rescue. We can live for his glory. How do we, how do, we do this, though? How do we actually live for his glory? There's a few passages and a few thoughts I I want to share just as a wrap-up. Number one, we do this by loving one another. Jesus in John's Gospel, John 17, says, this is how all people will know that you're my disciples, by your love for one another. We we love one another. That phrasing around our bodies being temples of the Holy Spirit is used twice in the New Testament. Once it's used for individual bodies, this bit. Once it's used for this body, the body of the church. And in both cases, we're encouraged to see that this body or this body are a temple of the Holy Spirit. And what we, how we treat this body of the church is really important. 
it's at least as important as how we treat this, our own bodies, and how we use them for God's glory. How we act towards each other matters. We need to act with love. How we treat each other matters. It's a holy thing. So love one another. Secondly, also communion. One of the ways we display God's glory is by taking communion. You might think, how, how can that be the case? Because this is a proclamation. In a few minutes as a congregation, we'll be sharing communion together and we'll be proclaiming Jesus' death until he comes back. So we'll be proclaiming and declaring God's uh, giving of his son to us. And we'll be proclaiming that today as part of the ch- worldwide church who are proclaiming God and making him known and making known his glory day after day. When we share communion, we serve one another. We submit to one another. We love one another. We put things right between each other. We say, Lord, you're leading us. And we submit to you. Thirdly, our friendships together can display God's glory. In Acts chapter 2, we read of the early church and meeting together in each other's homes and sharing together and having fellowship meals, which included this communion meal. And they're, they're being together and there's something of that sense of community which displays God's glory to the, the, to the lonely world around. If you want, so, if you, so far, if you want to display God's glory, love people, be kind to them, treat them well, have them around for dinner. If you want to display God's glory to the world, have people around for dinner and build community and share communion and uh, let's be a people who are relating to each other and showing the watching world that there is one that we're pointing to. Fourthly, our response to the needy in our society displays God's glory. Again, in the book of Acts, we read about the early church selling property, giving to the poor and looking after those who had need. The way we treat the broken the, the way we treat those who have little will either display or hide the glory of God. My prayer is that we will display the glory of God. We preach the good news with signs following. That's a great display of the glory of God. But then one final one is this. We live righteously to display the glory of God. We honor our bodies as temple of the Holy Spirit. And this is a, a great challenge today. In the wider world around, we're told that I can do what I like with this. And that it's the ultimate sin almost to stop me expressing this in the way I want to, in the way that I feel is inappropriate with my identity. And to express that somehow you're curbing my freedom to express myself in the way I need to or want to. And yet we read that Actually, God has a higher purpose for all of this. That the highest purpose for this is that I display him, not me. That the highest purpose for why I'm created is that I point to the Savior, that I point to the King, that other people can see him in me, in this clay, in this lump that, that is important. It's, it's what God's given me to use. It's what God's, God's given me, but it's the best I've got. But it's still clayy. It's still lumpy. It's still jarry. It's still not the treasure. The treasure's within and we point to the treasure. We point to the one and we do that by living righteously. This particular passage in 1 Corinthians is is following on from Paul talking about sexual immorality and it's often said that the church singles out sexual sin as as one particular sin and, and shouldn't do that. And perhaps there's an element of truth in that. That we that we have not elevated and lifted up and pointed out 
amongst ourselves the dangers of being in any kind of sin. And maybe we have only focused on that area. But there is a particular challenge that comes with sexual sin that Paul's dealing with here in this passage. And he says you should run from it. Because sexual sin has a particular effect on your body, and your body's meant to be a temple of the Holy Spirit. Somehow, this, the challenge of living righteously, I think, portrays as much as any of the other aspects to a watching world that we're pointing to the King. We're pointing to one who is bigger than us, who's greater, who's more magnificent, and we're showing his glory. So let me wrap all this up. How then? Do we see God's glory? We see God's glory in creation. We see God's glory through the pages of the Old Testament in the times he appears in his workings with Israel. We see God's glory most magnificently in the presence of Jesus. But still today, we have the opportunity and the privilege to carry something of the glory of God in our day-to-day life. And the way we treat people, the way we act, the way we live, the way we speak, the way we think, will offer an opportunity for others to see God in us. That blows my mind. My prayer today would be that we might show him more clearly, display him more wonderfully, and point to him more consistently than ever before. That, I believe, is our calling, to make him known, to point to the one who's greater than all, that they might see. Don't panic if they don't. Paul writes about that in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, that many won't see. That shouldn't stop us shining. shouldn't stop us displaying him and pointing to the king. Let's pray, shall we? Father, I thank you for your word. I pray, Lord, that we might see you more and more. Father, I pray that we might see your glory. We might see a revelation of yourself As we look in our own lives, as we look in others' lives, as we look in the church, would you do something new amongst us? Lord, as we hear from about sharing communion together in just a moment, as we we move to, to celebrating together what you've done for us, may we see this as an act showing you and therefore showing your glory. Father, we want to be those who live rightly. And I'm aware in my own life there are times when my focus, my expression of who I am, my, my expression of my desires doesn't bring honor and praise to you. It doesn't make people point to you. Instead, they're pointing to me. Father, forgive me. Forgive us for the times when the way we live our lives doesn't point to you. Instead, I pray you'd give us courage and a new conviction to go into this week aware that we can point people towards you. In Jesus' name, amen.